Hi, I'm William Chamberlain of Popular Materials Department. Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. Today, Clint and I have an interview with director Ralph Bakshi. Mr. Bakshi has directed Fritz the Cat, Coonskin, Wizards, and The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings will be showing at the Nashville Public Library on Saturday, May 11th at 2 p.m. in the main auditorium. More about that later. On to the interview. When I look at your uh, movies, on one side you have your urban tales, Fritz the Cat, Heavy Traffic, and Coonskin, and on the other side you have your fantasy films, Wizard, Lord of the Rings, and Fire and Ice. What's your attraction to those two genres? Okay, that's a fair question. First of all, you know, I started out as a cartoonist before I became a film director, and so I ever wanted to do was be a cartoonist, and Back in the 40s and 50s, that was a very big deal. Well, we had magazines and newspapers in place to support a cartoonist. They, they bought the work. There isn't a cartoonist who doesn't love fantasy. You know, because in the 50s, also science fiction was a very big deal. Science fiction books were a very big deal. All that stuff was brand new, and cartoonists were at the cutting edge of that. So... Fantasy was something all cartoonists turned to, but they loved it. The urban stuff came late, and that's where I started. And then I went to work for Terry Tunes as an animator on kids' stuff. The urban stuff came later when I realized that animation could discuss personal visions, that it didn't have to be fantasy. And it came from me reading certain writers in the 50s. You know, and it came to me understanding about the the Beatniks, Kerouac, and those guys, and jazz music. So my taste went from being a pure cartoonist, and I learned something new. And the something new was that fantasy wasn't the only place to express yourself. So there's where you had the split. You mentioned you started out at Terry Tunes and you ran Paramount Cartoons. What made you want to break away and make your own movies? Uh, lots of reasons. First of all, uh, the biggest reason was wherever I worked, whether it was Terry Tunes that I ran or Paramount, you always had these tremendous restrictions as to what you could do. In other words, before you even sat down, the bosses, whether it be a Paramount or a Terry Tunes, called you a director, but they didn't allow you to do anything except what they wanted. And what they wanted was children's stuff, which is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with being a kid, because I was a kid once. But, you know, I was, as you grow up as a man, you want to do something else, and you want to express yourself. The fact that most of the animators in those days wanted to do kid stuff so easily and not give it up was because of, it was because of Disney. Everyone thought that Disney was the best in the world, and it was very good. If it really wasn't Disney, if you want to be honest, that's where the money was. But if you do kids' stuff, and you do merchandising with the kids' stuff, and everyone's going to buy it, you can make a lot of money. If you do the kind of garbage that I want to make, 
There's no money in it. So greed had a lot to do with why animators continue to want to do kid stuff. I wasn't concerned with the merchandising. I was concerned, like all of us in the 60s, how do you express yourself? You know, during the 60s, even where you lived, there was a lot of turmoil. You know, there was integration, there was peace marches, there was the Vietnam War, there was Bobby Dylan. I mean, how would you just want to sit there and do cats chasing mice? It's beyond my understanding. So that's what happened to me. So basically, that's why I left those other places. In the book, Unfiltered, the complete Ralph Bakshi, it mentions while you were 15, you were cruising your local library and you discovered Gene Burns' complete guide of cartooning. Um, could yes. you discuss the influence uh, this book had on you? <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I never should have said that. Okay, uh, well, I used to go to the public library to see if I could find something to read. I was not a cartoonist at that point. I liked to draw, but I didn't know that I liked to draw. It wasn't anything that I thought uh, I could earn a living at. My parents were immigrants, and we were very poor. So I kept going to the library to find something to interest me once in a while. Uh, he also kept me off the streets in the winter, which was very cold in Brooklyn. And I'm wondering how I pull out this book from the shelf, and it's called Gene Burns, The Complete Guide to Cartooning. And I looked at it, and it was about how to become a cartoonist. Well, I just looked at it and stared for about 20 minutes in the library. It was the most beautiful thing I ever saw, okay? So I was going to take it home to read, right? And it was that book yeah, that made me realize that, that cartooning was a way you could earn a living, that cartooning was a way you could be taught. I never had that idea, so I was going to take it out, but I was going down the stairs. It was a two-story building. Uh, there was an open window that led to the street on the side. So I decided to throw the book out the window and take it home for forever. I still have that book. So I didn't check it out. I robbed it. Um, but it had to be, because I never was going to bring it back anyhow. So either I was going to face all these letters with fines at five cents a day or something, which I could not afford, or just, because I was never going to bring the book back. I was so in love with this book, I can't explain it to you. I mean, I would have killed somebody. So it would have everything to do with me becoming a cartoonist. I mean, I studied it and studied it and started to draw, and then I went to art school because of the book. In other words, I was very young. I was, I was not even in junior high, so I eventually went to art school because of the book. And that, of course, taught me more. I would have gone to art school. All my friends went to the neighborhood public school. My art school was up in New York, so... The book had a tremendous, tremendous impact on me. It made the whole difference in the world. And I still have the book, so I was thinking of returning it to the library. It's still there. <laughs> I was. My wife told me I'm crazy. Hey, it's, like it's, your, it's your Talmud, your Bible. <laughs> no question about it. No, no, it's exactly right. No, you nailed it. It was my Bible. It was the most religious tract I ever read. You know, it was like studying fonts. Anything I studied in the Jewish Bible or anything. No question about it. That's exactly the right word. Hey, Mr. Baxter, this is Clint here. I was going to ask you about you being a young guy and directing your animated films and bringing in a lot of, like, these old-timer animators, the guys like Ray yeah. Patterson and Irv Spence and Andy Palawada. 
what what did those guys bring to your your films? And I mean, because those guys are like the unsung heroes of of animation that we don't really hear a whole lot about. Could you just talk a little bit about them? Wow! Wow! You know your stuff. That's amazing. Thank you. Thanks for that question. It's a long story, but it's very important to young kids. When I came to Terry Tunes in the fifties, I was stunned because they're sitting in rooms and a desk for all the old cartoonists and animators that I respected. You know, and by the way, Irv Spence was one of the key animators in Gene Burns' book. When you look at Gene Burns' book, The Art of Cartooning that I wrote, Irv Spence has got a photo in there animating at MGM. And I showed him the book when, I, when he worked for me, and he signed the book for me. So, you know, this is, uh, this is pretty amazing. Uh, those guys are the greatest guys in the world. They were cartoonists in the old-fashioned way. They drew with their hearts. They weren't Disney animators. Uh, they still loved the art form. They didn't think they were very good compared to Disney, which was crazy. Uh, I thought they were absolutely the best. Uh, their shorts, Max Fleischer's shorts are better than Disney shorts any time you look at them. And I was stunned by learning from these guys. These guys were very grateful to teach any young kid they taught me they let me watch and draw they were very good guys and a lot of them you know started out as hobos and clowns and circuses and you know these were men who learned cartooning the hard way very unpretentious there was also a battle going on at the time between the young, the new animators the upa guys and the new art style that gene Deitch, who had come to terry tunes to to run it, right, despised these guys because they were old-fashioned. And I immediately got into huge fights with the younger guys and the younger designers that these guys were the industry. And that if you, if you, that these guys could do anything, it doesn't just because you're young, you're better, which is crazy. You know, if you're over 40 or 30, you're dead you know, in, in, the, in some businesses. So that was it. And when I got my own place and I went to California, these guys were out of work. All the short studios had closed down, MGM and Warner Brothers. And these heroes of mine were out on the, on the streets. And I, I jumped at the opportunity to hire them. I hired them all, you know. And I didn't hire Disney guys, per se, because they're, they're too good. and They have no life to their stuff. They're all very slick and very pretty and very perfect, and that's not what animation is. Animation is fun. Manny Perez, Daffy Duck, it's Bugs Bunny. You know, there's a, it's not slick. It's raw. And all these guys have that tremendous ability. So I love these guys. I'm going on Kickstarter next week, and I put all these guys' names up, and show their footage that you asked the right question. I want to play Kickstarter to get the money, if I can, for an animated short called The Last Days of Coney Island. And I ran all these guys' animation and told, and put their names up on Kickstarter. So, so they're all, and they're all gone. And there they are again, you know, repre, being represented in, one, in my next movie, which makes me feel great. That's how I feel about them. I feel about them the way I feel about the Burns book. You can't replace these guys. So I think they're the greatest animators in the world. I think that's been proven. They built the industry. The MGM and Warner Brothers and Fleischer short blow the Disney shorts out of the water. You can look at, you know, we look at the Disney shorts today. They're all very slick and pretty and sweet. 
you look at Popeye, you can laugh your head off. I had three of the greatest Popeye animators on Fritz the Cat, Jim Tyre, Johnny Gent, you know, and that Virgil Ross, one of the greatest uh, Bugs Bunny animators. So what can I say? Cause these guys are the art of animation. You know, and I was lucky enough. And they all wanted to work for me and we all had a ball. I mean, these guys loved what I was doing. These, the reason for life today is when the entire animation industry hated me for what they thought I was doing, which was anti-Disney, or just doing my own thing. I wasn't anti-anybody. These guys supported me. If they didn't support me, there would be no films. And so I have nothing to say about these guys except how great they are and how proud I was to have them to be able to work with them. You know. You're talking about Disney, and there's a moment in Fritz the Cat where a riot breaks out, and there's a brief shot. It looks to me like Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, and Donald Duck in a shadow waving an American flag as the Air Force bombs the city. Um, was that your just comment on Disney? Hell yeah. <laughs> but you aren't supposed to see that. <laughs> and number two, I, I thought Disney was going to sue me, but they never did because I guess they didn't want me to get the publicity. You know, but I, I, listen, but no one ever mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, I, that's right. That's exactly my comment. Because they were at that point so conservative. I had a very difficult time. Let me tell you something. When I came to Los Angeles from New York with Fritz the Cat, there was a huge one-page ad in Variety. Now, Variety is the biggest film magazine in the day. It was a daily. And with a huge page ad telling me to go home, that they don't need my stuff in the town that Disney uh, had so wonderfully, you know, done his work, you know, and they didn't need a guy like me and was signed by all the animators at Disney and some other places. So the first thing this young kid I faced was this ad telling me to take my garbage home. And that's exactly what they said. They called me a pornographer, you know. So my fight with Disney went from that first day uh, it was all Disney animators that signed it. Wish I could find it. I, I'd frame it. You know, I was embarrassed. I felt terribly hurt. Uh, and I put it away. I never looked at it again. But that, you know, but my fight with Disney goes all the way back. And because those guys, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it, they were always after me. And yeah, that was a comment. That was an exact comment. Another favorite moment of mine is in the movie Heavy Traffic, and it's when the cartoonist Michael goes in to pitch his religious script for Wanda the Last to Mr. Quigley, who is on his deathbed, and the pitch kills Mr. Quigley. I just have to ask, was that inspired from a pitch meeting that you went to, or what was the origin of that particular moment? <laughs> That's all the pitch meetings I went to. Everywhere you went, you know... Uh, they were looking for something that would make merchandise, and we spoke about this earlier. Those syndicates were the worst. If you thought the animation studios were bad, the syndicates were so white bread. They were the worst. So that was every pitch I've ever had. That was the extraordinary thing that I went through. You should have seen me try to sell for it to the cat. I got thrown out of studios in my butt. What I'm saying is that was what I was up against. And I knew it would kill him when I pitched. If I, I really didn't want to do the work. Michael knew what was going to happen too quickly. Uh, and all the cuts, all the syndicates were run by guys who, give me another peanuts, 
you know, Gideon the Terry and the Pirates, all great scripts, but it was never anything brand new. So, yeah, that was a, an, you know, an attack on pitches, of course. Will they ever do a release of your cut of Hey, Good Looking with the actors intermingling with the animated characters? Well, my wife, who's a very big fan of the movie and says it's one of the best movies I've ever done, I don't believe that, but that's what she says, has been trying to get that release and trying to find it. We don't want to have a picture of it in the, in the vault. I'd love to see it released. I think it's amazing. You stated that you would go out and record actual conversations between people and animate the conversation. Could you discuss how you would go about doing this and recording sure. conversations? Well, there's lots of different ways. There were lots of different ways. There were different ways. In those days, first of all, in those days, all recordings were done in crystal clear studios. With no noise, you know, all the actors would go into a booth, we know the story, like radio, and record the voices. That's to make sure they were crystal clear. No pops, no slurs, no street noise. Now, I was doing this sort of, I wasn't exactly 100% sure, but I was doing this animation that was all on the street. And I know what the streets are like. They're not clean. They're not, they're not crystal clear. I wanted the honesty and naturalness of people, how they talk to each other. I mean, you sit in the bar or in a restaurant and listen to people talk, you could die laughing. So I wanted that natural sound. Now, in those days, uh, before all the recording equipment we have today, they had these things called Niagara's. Niagara's were battery-run tape recorders with very big reels that you could carry around with you. They had a microphone plugged in, and they basically were used by news reporters, you know, to get the uh, on-the-site look stories about what was happening from people who, who, who were there where there was a fire. And I thought if I took that, I could go to the park or a pool room or a bar anywhere I want and record people. And I did that. I, wanted, I also recorded sound effects the street noises and the cops and the sirens and people fighting in a bar or yelling at a pool. You know, a lot of my background noises recorded on location. So I went around and hired certain people, 10 or 50 bucks, construction workers and black militants and God knows who, to either read the lines that I gave them or i talked to them. I'd ask them questions if I knew the movie was about that I would take this tape back to the office and edit the tape so it made sense in the movie. All the black revolutionaries' discussion in Fritz was miles of tape that I had edited to make sense. And the opening with the construction workers talking about their daughters and everything, of Fritz the Cab, when you opened up, they were talking up there, building a building, was all done that way. You should have seen some stuff. The stuff that I left out was hysterical. I wish I could find that and make a movie about that. But you're not. And it was all authentic and all sounded right and all seemed to work. It was also very cheap compared to hiring an actor and bringing it to a studio at $200 an hour. You know, I didn't have that kind of money, so it also worked for my budget. You know, it was a very good way to spend less money and get better quality. Now, when I brought those tapes into Hollywood to mix the film, 
uh, these guys who mix films are very professional in Hollywood. They mix all the movies. Three of them got up and walked out. They wouldn't mix the film because the tracks were so dirty. They didn't want to touch it. They didn't want their names on this film because they didn't want to feel unprofessional. Like they should release such noisy tracks. I told them it wasn't their film, that it was my film, and I fired them. So they thought, I was, they thought I was going to do something, and I brought three other guys in who didn't want to get fired, and they did the film. So it was never, ever, I'm not proud of that. I'm just saying it was never, ever easy you know, to get these. You'd always get bushwhacked in places you don't really know where it's coming from. You know, But everybody wants perfection. I didn't want perfection. I want rawness. You know, and um, I, that's me. That's where I grew up. That's why I threw the book out the window. <laughs> you know, you got to be real or go home. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not even fun. Go ahead. Please do. Please do. We're having fun, too. Uh, you met J.R.R. Tolkien's daughter before the making of Lord of the Rings, and she said she was a fan of wizards. I was just wondering, could you... Talk about what you discussed before you went to make your version of Lord of the Rings. Well, this was great. So I'm going to England. I'm out of the country for the first time, right? So I'm going to England to meet J.R. Tolkien's daughter. Why am I doing that? Well, because Disney, who had the right, had totally screwed them over and wanted to rewrite the material and eventually got rid of it. Then, the, then Rankin and Bass had done this horrible rip-off version of The Hobbit. You know, and then I got the rights because the United Artists, who had bought it from Disney, didn't know what to do with it and didn't want to make it. So they gave it to me to do something, you know, because I went into their office and demanded it. <laughs> so I went to England to make sure that she was okay with this. In other words, I wasn't going to do... I felt about Tolkien the same way I felt about Gene Burns, that The Lord of the Rings was one of the greatest fantasies I ever read. You know what I'm saying? And I was so impressed with it. I wasn't about to touch it unless somebody allowed me to. So I went to England. I didn't have to, to talk with his, her, his daughter about what I wanted to do on the film to get her okay or not. Because I told the producers, Saul Zenz and the MGM, that I wasn't going to do this. Although she gave me the okay. I wasn't about to touch it. So I went and had lunch with her. Imagine, you know, I'm sitting in an English cafe having tea with Tolkien's daughter, which is ridiculous because, you know, I don't know where I am, and I'm trying to be polite, you know. And we had a long conversation about it, and she loved what I had to say so much, she took me into Oxford. I was outside of Oxford with her where she lived, up into an attic where Tolkien had written Lord of the Rings, you know, in this little area on top of stairs. She showed me his studio, and I was stunned. And then they were having a Tolkien drawing exhibition in Oxford at the time, which was his little pen and ink drawings of Lord of the Rings, which he had done. And she took me to the exhibition, which was closed. They opened it up for me. And then she said, by all means, I should go do the movie. So I went home, and I started the movie. So that was my experience with Tolkien's daughter. It worked out fine. You know? And uh, what's his name? Made a billion dollars, Peter Jackson. Made a billion dollars on the movie, maybe a trillion, and never sent me a bottle of wine. Even though when he was a kid, I inspired him to, to the talk. 
He read Dawkins after he saw my movie. So this is, this is what you're up against. Mr. Jackson didn't send me a postcard. What did you think of his versions of the of the films? I never saw them. I wouldn't look at them. I didn't want. I didn't want to look at them because I don't want to get into this. But there are many problems on what rights he had to do the film. But I don't want to get into that exactly. I didn't want to see them. I haven't seen them, and I won't see them. It would be too hard for me. I mean, it's just too hard for me to look at someone else doing what I wanted to finish. So it's a painful thing. So the best way to avoid it is not to look at it at all. Well, to change gears here a little bit, and uh, when I saw Coonskin for the first time, probably in the early 90s on a VHS, it was under the Street Fight name, but uh, one of the things that kind of uh, interested me about it was, I guess it was when I was first getting into knowing about cinema and cinematographers and stuff, and William Fraker was the cinematographer on that, who I guess a couple years earlier had done a bunch of Hollywood films like Paint Your Wagon and whatnot, and I was just wondering, because Coonskin doesn't look anything like a Hollywood movie. It looks more like an experimental avant-garde film, like a Jonas Mikas film or something. So <laughs> what, what, did, what, did, what, did, what did Fraker have? Are you a filmmaker? Are you a filmmaker? Yes, you, sir. You I, I do some stuff like that. You know that. What is, could you ask me a question about Fraker? Because what about Fraker? You know, that doesn't look like anything else that he had ever done. Well, he had ever did it. What happened? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> You're too good, kid. What happened was that, you know, like, <laughs> the producer, Al Ruddy, who's a complete asshole, the producer, Al Ruddy, hired Frank. It was Frank it was Hollywood. And they wanted to control me. I'm the madman. Okay? So they know that I'm going to, nah, I don't follow Hollywood rules. So they can get me Franka. But Frank it was so Hollywood, it was incredible. Okay. So, you know me, I'm recording on location and everything. I'm looking for natural sound. So on my first and second day of shooting, right, the cameras are shut down. We had just had a take. The cameras are shut down, and Franklin went for his usual 10 million cup of coffee and scotch. I don't know what. You know, everything is lit perfectly in the set. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching Scatman Crothers and Charles Gordon having a conversation. They're having a conversation about the, what they're thinking and about the scene and everything, dressed for the scene, because the scene was about them. And it was exactly what I wanted. When they were acting in the Hollywood way, it was bullshit. It wasn't right. But suddenly, hair coming out of their mouths was exactly what I wanted for the scene. So I'm screaming for Frankie to get back and turn the cameras on. Well, he wasn't coming back. He wasn't around. So I turned the camera on. I just put you, all you do is put a switch. The camera's in position, but that's the scene we're shooting, right? And, I, and, I, and the scene, the camera starts to run, and I'm, I'm getting the conversation. I'm, getting, I'm shooting it. That's them at the wall under the prison. And Franklin comes back. He says, what's going on? I says, listen to the scene. It's great. Look, look, I turned the camera on. Because all the lights were in place. Everything was lit. Just what he does, I put the switch on instead of off. He went ballistic, and he quit. <laughs> he he wouldn't allow me to turn the camera. He quit. So I wished him good luck and hired a guy who finished the film for me, some kid <laughs> who got who shot the entire movie. That's it. So Frank never did the movie. Though he got credit, though you know he got paid, he got credit. So. I kind of figured that's what it was. <laughs> he didn't last too long. <laughs> 
You have, well, they should only go on with it. I want the moment. I want the moment. That's all film's about to me. You know, the moment. When it happens, it's very, very rare and should not be lost. The fact that everything was lit and the sound was on and everything was just as we just finished shooting, there was nothing more to do than to turn the camera on. Whether he turned it on or I turned it on, didn't seem to matter to me at the time. How wrong was I? You know what I'm saying? Anyhow, I was so glad when he quit. I wished him good luck. <laughs> I mean, I was the happiest. And I went out and got some guy we shot without lights. We did the flash system for the first time in Hollywood. We shot in New York without any lights at all. You know, that footage under the bridge and everything was shot. And driving around in the car was all shot natural. Draken would have done that. It would have hurt his reputation. I ha- can we ask, uh, it's at the 30-minute, can we ask a couple more questions, Mr.? Ask whatever you want. I'm out of the ball. Okay. I'm out of the ball. You ask good questions. I mean, you're asking great questions. You should see I have some of the questions I get. Okay. <laughs> uh, really, you wouldn't you would believe them. Go ahead. Uh, um, I've got to ask about Wizards, and that's an original script that you wrote. Could you talk about the inspiration behind that story, of the screen story for there's two, there's two inspirations. First of all, the first inspiration was reading Lord of the Rings. Okay? I mean, Lord of the Rings blew me away. The second inspiration was trying to do an American version fantasy that had sort of the same love of characters that Tolkien had. The the other inspiration was me, as usual, worried about pollution, worried about terrorists. This is early now. Worried about terrorists getting their hands on the atom bomb. Worried about garbage or pollution that's going to fill the world up. And worried about technology running amok. You know? So those are my personal beliefs, and that's what gave me the story of Wizards. In other words, it was that that drove... And, of course, being Jewish, you know, the fear that fascism was coming back. Um, and it has. And, it, and it, it has. It always does. You know? And pretty much Pakistan, you know, with Pakistan falling apart with India, terrorists there, I don't know who's going to get their hands on the bomber. A wizard is a look into the future. Those bombs, North Korea, those bombs are going off one day. You know, and we're not doing anything about it now. So, Wizards was all about that, stemming from Tolkien, who wrote his Lord of the Rings during World War II. You have to understand the power and everything, and Sauron was Hitler, as far as I'm concerned. You should look into that. So there's a lot of World War II in what Tolkien wrote, as far as I'm concerned. You know, about poor, oppressed people having to fight the, the fascism which was winning the war at the time he was writing the book. So, uh, yeah, very similar. Now, you should know that Dark Horse Comics wants to make Wizards 1, 2, and 3 over as movies, giant movies now, and then negotiating with a lawyer of mine in L.A. right now. I don't know how real it is, you know, but it's funny you should ask that question because... It may become three movies, the trilogy that I always wanted. Well, I was even going to... Without Freika. Without Freika. Would that be in a, just a hand-drawn 2D animation still? Or uh, no. Now, that's, I'm not sure. That's the question. 
But I would say this without committing too much, that could, I could envision the technology being computer animation, you know, the, all that strange technology that I use rotoscope on. And I'm saying, wow, you know, uh, would that be amazing? So I'm all for the technology being computer. And I've been asking various animators what they think. Right now, I've been questioning my friends who I respect. And all of them right now said I should go computer on everything, because that's the wave of the future. So their feeling is that I should stay with what's happening today and that they always have the old film to look at. What do you think? I just love that the 2D animation. I mean, it's just such a beautiful thing. I mean, I, and I love the 3D animation, too. I think, you know, a lot of that's great. But, you know, looking at Wizards, it's just such a beautiful film. And that's my point. That's why I'm masking to everyone else. I was surprised at the animators telling me to go the other way. I agree with you. But then again, I don't want to be old-fashioned. You know, I'm 74 now. And you tend, when you get old, if I worry about it, to holding on to old ideas and not seeing the future, which was something, you know. So I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm like you, and I, but I'm asking questions. You're the first guy to say go. You're the first guy to agree with me. <laughs> I just love about uh, the texture of Wizards because you use like you know that the Mike Plug artwork. You use like the, right. the Ann Miller backgrounds and and then the rotoscoping, which just you know that all just adds this texture into it. And I've just never seen an animated film like that. You know, there's just something that's very beautiful about it. And well, I don't that's know. my feeling. The the other problem is with Dark Horse, which hasn't come up yet. We just started negotiations. Everyone's afraid to touch that subject, so, including me. Uh, the old problem is that they're going to spend a lot of money. We'll just cost a million one. They're going to want to spend 80, 90, 130 million dollars on the film, right? That's what they do today in Hollywood, you know, uh, that they would be very nervous about those rough edges that only a low budget film could get. Because nobody really, no one's really looking at low budget films. But when you do big budget films, you got the studios and the bankers looking at you. So if you want to turn the camera on, they're going to back Freka. You know, they're going to say they're going to fire me and back Freka. You know, so, because these expensive pictures don't want directors around. You know, they don't want directors screwing up the picture. Because in today's market, producers make films, not directors. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I don't know what the answer is yet, but the negotiations are going on. I have to get it going because people like you and me want to see Wizards 2 and 3. You know what I'm saying? So let me say, they could go my way. I don't know yet what the answer is. We just got to negotiate. You're the first person to know. But I wanted to tell you, because you asked a question, I like your questions. And also like your accents. Okay. Well, I just wanted to ask you, you brought up about rotoscoping, and, and how do you feel now, because you've got so much crap for rotoscoping, and now people like Robert Zemeckis are out making these motion capture movies, which are basically just a high-tech form version of rotoscoping. Everybody, everybody's eating it up. So, I mean, what, what? I don't know. Kiss my ass. I'm always right. <laughs> I mean, well, welcome to the club. My pictures are still playing. Oh, 35 years later, Heavy traffic, Fritz the Cat. I have college kids every day emailing me saying they just saw it. Hey, good looking. My pictures are still playing. Disney thought I'd be dead in a week. Every picture that Disney made 
when I was making my pictures have disappeared. My pictures are still playing. It's the same old story. In other words, when you're first in something that people aren't used to, they get mad at you. You know, they think you're stupid. You're shaking the boat. The, the animation that I was called pornographer on is obviously not pornography. It's political. So all the stuff that I went through is now accepted. So it's Zemeckis and all these guys, uh, they know a good thing when they see it, you know. And the, and, the, and the technology today, it's called motion capture. I call it rotoscope. They call it motion capture. Motion capture is rotoscope. Tremendously well done. But they've got all the tools to do it. We did it the old-fashioned way. We had to trace photographs. Well, that's all out the window now. You know, you could put a piece of live action in the computer. Right now, a piece of live action in the computer. Take everything out, the background, the color, the characters. Just leave the line of the live action and paint it like a cell, and you've got what I did back in the old day. Machine. A machine. You know. Um, in your audio commentaries, you're always talking about underground comics. Could you discuss how they influenced you, and what are some of your favorites? Well, underground comics were, the, were tremendous. They were the same thing that I was trying to do in animation. You know, they were they were my friends and heroes. They were going in this. They what they did was backed up my feelings that we were all right. You know, that we were all right. In other words, that this was correct. We were all kids. Uh, Crumb I loved. He hates me, but I love him. Vaughn Bodie, all these guys were, um, were my friends. So underground comics, and it wasn't that the business was in the day, and they were facing the same stuff that I was facing. So, of course, I was part of that group of artists. You know, I, I was part of that all of us, all those guys grew up on the comic strips. We know Walt Kelly and all the uh, Daffy Ducks. All of us grew up on the old stuff and graduated to uh, the new stuff, which was the new America, you know, at that time. So I was just part of that. We all were roughly the same age. And just the final question. I've recently been watching... Um, your late 80s version of Mighty Mouse, in which you were involved in. I've had so much fun watching it. It's fast, smart, surreal. Did you have a game plan going in, or just how did it all get started? Well, I was looking to get back in the business. I was trying to sell other stuff, which nobody bought. Then I remembered that Mighty Mouse was a great character I worked with as a kid. I had this artist called John Chris Lucia and other young guys younger than me. And I discussed it with them, and they thought they could change it from old to new, which I wanted. I believed them, and I went to CBS and I sold it. And then when they bought it, I, I couldn't believe they couldn't believe the rights run were available to me. You know, I had had the rights to Mighty Mouse. Of course, I did not. But the minute they bought it, I went to Viacom, who owned the rights and said that I had sold this show and I wanted the rights. And they said, you sold it? Do we, do we get money? I said, absolutely. So they gave me the rights. I went back to CBS with the rights. Uh, but you know, that's how I do stuff. I throw stuff out the window. And, uh, and um, we did it. These young guys did it. I wouldn't have done it that way if I did it myself. So I'm not taking all the credit for that at all. You know, 
by the way, all the uh, you should look at the list of names on the Mighty Mouse. Oh yes, <laughs> they're all the guys at Pixar and DreamWorks now. They're all young directors. They made Wally. My writers made all those guys that I trained and screened at and told them how to do stuff. All became great directors at Pixar and uh, Disney. Uh, and you also given yourself some nice cameos in those episodes. Those are those guys. That was <laughs> <laughs> you see what they did to me in Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> I'll say that when that, and Mighty Mouse came out, it, it was 87, and I was 12 years old, and that was the perfect cartoon for a 12-year-old. That's right. I mean, it, just, it hit everything that I ever wanted in life and cartoons and whatnot. I mean, it was a life changer. Thank you very much, you know. But, you know, with the young guys, I was young once. I understood what they were going at. You know, I love talent. My, one of my abilities, other than being a bullheaded, is I love talent, and if I spot talent, they go to work. I don't care what their credits are. You know, those young guys who just out of out of Cal Arts and everything were, and were angry at working at Hanna Barbera. They were bored. They were drinking at night. You know, the, I knew that these guys could do something. You know, so it doesn't matter how it gets done, as long as it gets done. You know. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for doing this interview with us. This this was a true thrill for us. Well, I had a lot of fun. It's early here. It's a perfect time for me to shoot my mouth off. The questions were great. I'm not patronizing you. The questions were excellent. They allowed me to state my case clearly. They weren't stupid, and I really appreciate that. So anytime you, I can help, just give me a call. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. All right, guys. Take All right. care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I would like to thank Ralph Bakshi for granting us an interview. Just remember, come to the Nashville Public Library on Saturday, May 11th at 2 p.m. in the main auditorium to see Lord of the Rings, the animated version. Remember, it's free, and today's music is Cartoon Time by Ed Bogus. This is William Chamberlain of the Nashville Public Library. May I speak to Ralph Bakshi, please? It's Bakshi, William. Bakshi. I'm sorry, <laughs> sir. What kind of a Bakshi? That's, uh, that's my brother's name. I'm oh. Bakshi. Okay, Bakshi. I'm sorry. Well, are, are you ready to do the interview? <laughs> well, Max, I'm like you. How can I refuse? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to let my AV specialist here introduce himself. My name is Clint Tatum. I'm the one who's doing the recording here. He talks just like he does. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pleasure to be talking with you. I've been a big fan of yours since I was a kid. So this is. uh, Well, thank you. No wonder you're so screwed up. So what do we got? 